So um, what is the question that I'm asking myself? I think um, what I find really uncertain is to understand how far we're going to share, when we're going to stop sharing, how far we're going to allow ourselves to monitor and surveil each other in kind of a covalence. So um, I'm not really that cons I believe that there's no end to how much we can track each other, how far we're going to self-track, how much we're going to allow companies to track us. And so I, 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 I find it really difficult to believe that there's going to be a limit to this. And so to, to try to imagine this world in which we are being self-tracked and co-tracked and tracked by governments and yet accepting of that is, is really hard to to imagine. So um, the question I'm asking myself is how does this work? How, how can we have a world in which we are all watching each other and everybody feels happy? Um, so because I don't see any counterforce to the forces of surveillance and self-tracking. And so I'm trying to listen to what the technology wants, and the technology is, is suggesting that, it's, that it wants to be watched, that, that, that um, what the Internet does is track, just like what the Internet does is to copy, and you can't stop copying, you kind of have to go with the copies uh, flowing. And I think the same thing about this technology is it's suggesting that it wants to monitor, it wants to track, and that you really can't stop the tracking. So what, maybe what we have to do is is work with this tracking, try to bring symmetry or have areas where there's no tracking in a kind of a temporary basis. I don't know. But all I'm saying, this is the question I'm asking myself, is how are we going to live in a world of ubiquitous tracking? I, I, I think that I'm, I call myself a protopian, not a utopian. I believe in progress in an incremental way where every year it's better than the year before but not by very much just just a micro amount and that um, over time we have progress so I, I, I believe in progress but I don't believe that there's any kind of state of a world without problems brought on by technology I think every new technology creates almost as many problems as it, that it solves and so for most people, that, that statement would suggest that the technology is kind of like a, a wash. It's kind of neutral, because if you're creating as many problems as it solves, then, then it's, just, uh, it's, it's a 50-50 wash. But I think um, the, the difference is, is that, uh, the difference in, in, in my protopian view the, uh, versus, say, a neutral view, is that um, all these new technologies bring are new possibilities that did not exist before, including the new possibility of doing harm versus good. So so a way to think about this is, is if you imagine the very first tool made, say a stone hammer, that stone hammer could be used to kill somebody or it could be used to make a structure. But before that stone hammer became a tool, that possibility of making that choice did not exist. And so technology is continually giving us ways to, to, to do harm and to do well. It's amplifying both. 
it's amplifying our power to do well and our, and our power to do harm. But the fact that we also have a new choice each time is a new good, that that's a good, that, that, that in itself is an unalloyed good, the fact that we have another choice. And that additional choice tips that balance just tiny in one direction towards a net good. So you, you have the power to do evil expanded, you have the power to do good expanded, you think that's a wash, but in fact we now have a choice that we did not have before, and that tips it very, very slightly in the category of the sum of good. So I think over time, we are generating new technologies, we're producing all new um, problems. Most of the problems we have today are technogenic, meaning that they were created by technology in the past. Most of the problems in the future are going to be created by technologies we're creating today. So um, technology is, is a means of producing new problems. It's a means of producing new solutions. But the fact that we have a choice between those two is what tips the balance very, very slightly in the favor of the good for the long term. So I think over civilization scale, we have this net tiny incremental accumulation of these choices over time, and that tiny accumulation is what we call progress. You know, if you have 1% compounded annually, that can be very, very powerful. It doesn't seem like very much. What's 1%? But when you compound these accumulation of choices and options over time, that's what I call, that's what civilization is. It's the slow accumulation of a very tiny increase in new choices over time. Yes, technology will at times um, obliterate some choices, but the net gain over time is a small advantage in new choices, and that's what I think civilization is. It's an accumulation of increasing choices, and I think that's why people move from cities to, I mean, move from countries into the cities. There's lots of reasons, but I think in the end, the, the main the main motivator is a pulling of, of, of people moving to a city because it has more choices and options than they had in their beautiful country home. And I think that's what the future is doing, the same thing, with pulling people from the past into the future because very few people go back the other way and live like their their ancestors because the future has more choices and possibilities. And I think that is what, in the end, given everything else about technology, that's what it gives us. That's That's why we keep making this stuff. It's not really to sell more things. It's not really... Um, I mean, it's about all those things, but primarily what it is, is is what we're doing with technologies. We're inventing new possibilities that did not exist before. I, I, think, I think there are, um, I think there are in, in technology there's two strands. There's evolutionary change and there's developmental change. Just like in our own bodies, most of what we experience as individuals is developmental. So, um, uh, while we're growing up, we start off as an egg, and we become a blastios, and then we become um, an embryo, and become a fetus, and then you know, newborn. And so, so, so that 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 trajectory is 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 a very determined and uh, it's developmental. And then there's also within us there's these other forces of mutation in our genes, which are more evolutionary. And I think a lot of what we see in technology is actually not um, evolutionary; it's actually developmental, meaning that. Um, 
if we were to look at a thousand or a million different planets with uh, sentient life and civilizations, we would find that there's a kind of develop, a general developmental course for um, the, the, the course of technology on a planet, in the sense that you would have a natural occurrence of, you know, uh, pottery before you have electronics, you know, whatever it is, that there, there, there are certain precursors to certain technologies. And I think the same thing is happening right now on um, the growth of this connected world, that, that there is um, certain um, developmental stages. And part of this is a kind of, is, is a cyclic thing, where um, uh, there's an, a, a period of openness, and then a period of consolidation, and then a period of, then the next rev of that is open while things kind of settle out and then that becomes consolidated and there is a sort of respiration cycles and I think we've been through several of those already um, one of them was kind of email and the, and the openness of email and then you had these kind of closed uh, CompuServe and and uh, Prodigy and AL and then there was this blossoming of the web which was all first and open and very chaotic and um uh, with with very few rules, and then there this is consolidation, and we have the close, um, kind of uh, cultivated, curated worlds of, of Facebook and and Google Plus, and then the next stage will likely be um, again a very open and wild and crazy and chaotic um, place while things are being sorted out, and that would likely itself uh, collapse again into um, more. Um, uh, enclosed and, and uh, proprietary systems as people figure out what it is that they want to do. And I think um, people tend to right now to think that the future of the web is Web 2.0. It's like a better web. Well, when we when the web was first coming out, uh, I know I went back to the early issues of Wired and, and all the Time magazines and Newsweeks and the newspapers trying to, to, to find out what people thought the web was going to be before it was. And what generally people thought, including to some extent myself, was that it was going to be better TV. It was like TV 2.0. That's what the web was. It was, it was you know, 5,000 different sources giving you the specialty information about, you know, uh, there would be a horse channel and a, a dog channel and a cat channel and a, and a saltwater aquarium channel. And all these things would be coming down and they'd be providing all the stuff and you could get it all in your home. But, of course, that missed the entire real revolution of the web, which was that it's all going to be coming, most of the content would be generated by the people using it. So, so the web was not better TV, it was the web. And now we think about the future of the web, we think it's going to be the better web. It's going to be Web 2.0, but it's not. It's going to be as different from the web as web was from the TV. And so I think um, in, in that next stage, it's, it's also going to be um, a, a very uh, frontier-like uh, situation where there is there's openness, there's lawlessness, there's uh, uh, land grabs, um, there there is a sense in which um, uh, great uncertainty um, and and new wealth and the resistance of the established players trying to um, you know, bend things in their direction, and then the next step after that will be a collapse and consolidation of that frontier. So, if we went back, if we took it, we, we were sent back with a time machine, back even 20 years, and reported to people what we have right now, um, and describe what we were going to get in this device in our pocket, which is, you know, we'd have this 
free encyclopedia, and we'd have this street maps to most of the cities of the world, and we'd have um, box scores in real time, and stock quotes, and um, weather reports, uh, the PDFs for every manual in the world, and uh, we'd make this very, very, very long list of things that we would say we would have, and we could get on this device in our pocket, and then we would tell them that most of the content was free. You would you would simply be declared insane. They would say there's no economic model to, to make this. How what, what is the what is the economics of this? this? This doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't make any sense. And um, uh, and it, it seems far fetched and, and nearly impossible. Um, and I think that the next twenty years are going to pale. Are going to make this last twenty year change just pale. That the that 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 we're just at the beginning of the beginning of all these kind of changes. I mean, there's a sense in which all the big things have happened, but I, I think nothing big has happened relatively yet. Um, and that, that all the that, that, that in 20 years from now we'll look back and say, well, nothing really happened in the last 20 years. I think that the issue of um, managing attention on the web and the sort of overwhelming ocean of information that we're generating and this relentless firehose of new stuff making it very difficult to, for anybody, young or old, to kind of pay attention to a long form is, is, is a great challenge. And, and um, uh, I think it's also uncertain which way it will go. Is it, is it sort of something inherent in this um, new technology that's going to make this always difficult? Or is this, uh, again, uh, a phase that we'll go through and people will, will get tired of it and, and return back to things I think I think we don't know we could go either way and I would have I would have arguments for, for both sides the the argument on uh, the side that there is still an appetite for long form is, is to is to think about um, the the appeal of some of these um, long serial movies like lost which is a hundred plus hours of very complicated narrative that um, uh, if you presented it again 20 years ago, nobody, anybody in TV or, or, or movies uh, would have told you that no one's going to pay attention to a 100-plus-hour movie. But, but you have these very long serials with a continuous narrative thread through it, and, and they're very, very complicated with many different plot lines, and people will love them. So there's, there's an example of um, things becoming more complicated and, and with requiring more, more attention. So I, I, uh, you know, will books be able to regain that, that place or long narratives like books? Uh, I, I don't know. But I think um, part of it is um, uh, a, a change in, in the format. I mean, I you know I know that my kids and all their friends, none of them not only don't read books, but what's interesting to me is that they're not watching television and the regular broadcast variety, and they're not even... Um, even movies aren't central to them. Um, what's central to their... If you, if you look at them and, and watch or listen to what they're talking about, they're discussing what they saw on YouTube. That's, that's the center of the culture. And, um, you know, that's, very, that's a very kind of bleak prospect for people who really want to go deep with ideas. But I think that's not 
I don't think that's really a statement about the short form of it right now. I think it's a statement about the accessibility of it, the digestibility. And, and I actually think that we could see in a YouTube that was better and improved tablets, new forms of um, animation, rendering, um, understanding actually how we learn. I, I think there's great potential in there to have a new form for, for deeper understanding. That's not the kind of flat book, and it's not the kind of linear um, uh, uh, TV show or video. It's it's something else. And, and again, I think we're going to be surprised right now because we think that the, the choices are either it's, it's TV, which doesn't seem to work for conveying information, movies, which don't seem to be that much better, books, which had a great reputation in the past and are no longer um, so popular it's we ha we are going to make something other we're, we're going to, we're going to use technology to kind of arrange how we present um, deep ideas and um, have people spend the time necessary to to master them I, I, I don't think it's um, a matter of either going to be books or video that the, neither of those are really so going here's to work. something else that's I think interesting. Everybody who's watching me right now, you and I, we've all, we all spent um, four, maybe more, five years with um, deliberate study and training to learn how to read and write. And that process of learning how to read and write actually has rewired our brains. We know that from plenty of studies of literate and illiterate people from the same culture that Reading and writing changes how you how how you how your brain works, and um, but that was only came about because of three or four, or four or five years of deliberate practice and study, and I think that um, um, we shouldn't expect necessarily that the real mastery of these new um, media is, is something we can just by hanging around. You know, you can't learn calculus just hanging around people who who know calculus. You actually have to study it. And it may be that for us to really master, particularly master the, the issues of attention management, critical thinking, learning how technological devices work and how they bite back, all this techno-literacy may re be something that we have to spend several years being trained to do. And so... Um, it may not. Maybe you can't just learn it by by you know hanging around people who um, do it, or else just hanging around and trying to learn it by osmosis. It may require a training and teaching a techno literacy, and that um, learning how to manage your your attention and, and and distractions is something that is probably going to require training. <clears throat> I, I I think that um, that. You know, the, the techno literacy goes for not just consuming um, the, the the media, but also creating it. And that we're in this we're in this era of the prosumer. There's this Toffler's term of of the uh, people who consume it, also being the produce people who produce it, and that you're both producing and consuming at the same time. And I think um, the whole maker movement is another great evidence that that we're in this kind of prosumer era where. Um, some of the artificial divisions that we had in the kind of industrial society where there was producers and consumers and they were separate camps um, were a little bit more back to our previous era, the hunter-gatherers, where people made the stuff that they consume. And I, and I think 
in a curious way, this technology can offer us more access to that. I, I, I think certainly most of the things that are going to be produced are going to be made by robots and automation, but we can modify them and we can change them and we can be involved in the co-production of them to a degree that we couldn't in the industrial age. And um, that's true not just for media and um, liquid and tangible things, but also for tangible things. And, and that's the that's the sort of the, the promise of 3D printing and robotics and all these other high-tech material sciences, which is, is that it's going to become as malleable using the Internet and AI and connection. The, the physical world will be as malleable for us when we have help of these tools as the intangible world has been. And, and, and so um, that era of the prosumer can return. But I think to do that, again, this is not going to happen by osmosis. I think it will take training. I think it will take teaching. It will take education. It will take uh, a literacy, a techno-literacy to learn how this works, how this world works, to, to learn that these technologies have bite back, that they have feedback, that they have issues, to learn that there's um, restrictions and there's costs and all this stuff. That this is Many, um, you know, for a long time, um, economists studying the new economy had a, had a saying that you know you could see every you could see computers everywhere except in the productivity statistics in the sense that that they were there it, it took a long time and we're still in that process of seeing the payoff from computers and um, so there there are there are uh, while there's internet speed of life which is going very fast we are biological beings and and um, there's generations uh, of investment infrastructure that um, will take a long time to pay off. And so I, I think that in a certain sense, um, um, we're, it, it'll, it'll take us another generation before we actually understand what the web is. So, 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 I, so I, do, I do think there is a huge lag between the arrival and our use of something and our complete understanding of it, what its role is and what it means and its effects plus and minus. And so, um, and I think that gap, even when we speed up, is going to remain, that it's still going to be, um, there's still going to be a gap between our, our, um, our placement of it and our acceptance of it. So the acceptance comes first. But I think this is actually important because that's, you know, I did a study of technology looking at prohibitions which don't work. They, they, they're always postponements. Um, we, can't, we can't regulate technology by prohibiting it. We have to only regulate it by use. We have to use things in order to steer them or rearrange them or reassign them. We can't, we can't manage our, our technology by not using it, by prohibiting them, by outlawing I, it. I think that um, uh, it's important that we understand that the, the proper way and the best way, the most efficient way for us to manage and regulate and um, control our technology is not by surrendering it and giving it up, relinquishing it, or prohibiting it. The, only, the, the, the primary way we want to do this is by engaging with it 
being constantly vigilant and working with it, using it, and it's through use that we can actually steer it. So I, I think there's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of really long-term trends going on, which is uh, in, in civilization, in society, which is that over time, um, more and more of, of our activities as humans became monetized, that money entered in, and money is really kind of a, it's not really about value, it's about, it's, it's a type of communication. That's the kind of excitement right now about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is many things, but among the many things that it is, is a, um, it's, it's a, it, it's a illumination of money as communication. So just like you could encrypt communication, now you can encrypt money. You can make it anonymous. You can do all these things that we used to do with communications, and now we can do with money. It happens also to be you know, speculative and, and, and other things, but, but um, the important thing is, is that it's a kind of communication. And that kind of communication of, of monetization is entering more and more of our life. And so it used to be that you know, Granny would teach a recipe to somebody, and now Granny charges money. And then, you know, it would be babysitting and things that you would do in a kind of a sharing economy would become monetized. Um, but one of the things we saw with this new technology was uh, a return to that kind of bartering and exchange without money that um, had existed before. But then, of course, the immediate response is to try to monetize that sharing by others. And so I think um, over time... I would expect, you know, in 200 years, that monetization would have crept into more of the world, but also that the options to remove oneself from that in some way would also continue to expand, that we would have more choices about whether we want to monetize our attention or not, whether we wanted to monetize what we shared or not, and that that, again, is this idea that what we're doing is expanding the possibilities. So monetization is going to happen. And the, the second reason why I think monetization will creep in is because we are using this technology to basically invent new ways to collaborate. And we had um, kind of uh, a limited number of ways to do that, say, in the past eras. You had government, which was one way to collaborate and to, to do things on a social scale. Um, and then you had corporations. And um, neither of those were sufficient. And then you had the market, which was this other kind of institution that was also monetized. And I think what we're doing right now is we're, we're, we're trying to invent other forms of collaborative work, other forms of um, doing social um, enterprise. And some of them are other forms of businesses, and some of them are other hybrids. And we have nonprofits, which are often very monetized. And we have these other collectives like you know, Wikipedias and Linuxes and open source, which are kind of not. And you have Burning Man-style things of zones. So the, the real excitement, I think, is looking for ways to collaborate together, some of which will have money involved, and some of which will have a deliberate um, refusal of certain aspects of money. But I, I think um, to lump them all together as kind of consumerism and corporatism is not 
really going to be useful. I, 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 I think um, I think it's better to understand these as as the, the the Technium trying to explore the different ways in which you can arrange people's work and the the credit and the and the and the sustenance that flows through them to keep them going. And and people are very I think very eager to try forms of transactions and forms of work that aren't in the old model that still work. And so um, uh, money is involved and money will always you know, propel things, but I don't think that that is really the best way to think about what's going on. Because, it, because um, uh, if you stand back, it's, it's just a, a much more interesting variety of, being, uh, of things being tried. One of, the, one of the kind of effects of this networked economy and this networked world that we make is that it's very common to see these network effects kick in where you have... Um, uh, you know, the more get more, and it grows bigger and bigger. And the more you have, the more attractive you become, and the more people you get, and the more people you get, the more attractive it is. And so you have these explosions, these exponential explosions of networks, which is how Microsoft got very big. It's how Google's getting big, and Facebook, and and they're all operating the same thing. But what I always told people was that this kind of natural monopoly. First of all, it was natural. It was it was. Had nothing to do with um, coercion of or, or scalping customers. It was it was a phenomenon that all networks show that there was going to be these winner take all things, but that the same forces that moved to to making them very large will also help them unravel just as fast. And so these these are these are temporary um, successes in a certain sense, and that 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 just as fast as they can grow, they can collapse just as fast. Blackberry, and so I think um, I think we shouldn't be too envious of that kind of scaling because it's a very ephemeral thing, and it's a very natural thing and a very ephemeral thing. And um, the other thing about this winner-take-all phenomena is is that uh, at first there's a kind of we have a natural reaction saying, well, you know, winner-take-all. There's only can be one winner. But here's, here's what technology is doing. Technology is actually increasing the number of races in which you can win. So um, there, there's more and more niches and more and more places in which uh, the technology creates new ways in which one can win. So there isn't a finite number of winners. There's an infinite number of winners. Um, as long as you're not trying to win someone else's uh, race. And so... The, the way everybody can become a winner is is, is that you keep increasing the, the number of ways to play, um, even though you have these winner-take-all phenomena. So um, there's only going to be one, probably one search winner, but there are so many other ways to race and, 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 and to win other than in, say, search. And in most of the cases, you know, uh, uh, Trying, trying to compete against a winner is not going to succeed in this kind of dynamic. What you want to do is you want to, you want to kind of make up a new way to I win. Think, I, I think the um, current infatuation with Twitter and to some extent Facebook is, um, is people kind of exploring this mode. Um, but I... I it, Again, it, re- it will remain as a as as a poss- as an option for others, for for everyone in the future, 
And so will blogging, and so will writing books, and so will YouTube, and so will... I mean, what we're doing is we're increasing the modes. And right now there's a huge kind of um, flurry of activity as people kind of explore what can you do with Twitter. And, and that's what's going on. And then we'll kind of learn what we can do with Twitter, and it will be in the context of what we can do with blogging and books and other things. I, I don't think it's going to... I think in 10 years from now, we're not going to have any conversations about Twitter. Just like people aren't really talking about blogs now. It's, it's, just, it's, it's going to kind of work its way through and we'll understand that it's another option in this kind of growing spectrum, which will to increase. Because in 10 years from now, there's going to be something else that everybody's going to be doing. And people will, will talk about the good old days with Twitter when people were just tw only tweeting. And I think that um, uh, right now, people are trying to figure out what can you do with it? What, how far can you take Twitter? How far can you go just tweeting? And I think that's a wonderful thing to, to kind of explore, even socially. And so um, it doesn't mean that um, the whole world and the whole media world is only going to be Twittering. I think that's, that's really short-sighted because th these things don't go that way. What happens is they become another option in the spectrum that people have. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, look how fast blogs came and gone. They didn't actually go away. There's still blogs there, but they're, they're just in that, in that little palette of, of things that, that you use together. And some people were a little better at it than others. That was okay. So I'm not so upset by it. There is a lot of concern about, you know, teenagers playing 40 or 50 hours wasting time on a, on a game or, or commenting on Reddit or whatever. And um, what, what it turns out is, is, is that, you know, they talk about addiction, internet addiction, which I don't really believe. I mean, I think there are occasional cases, but most of the time it's, um, it's young people who are becoming obsessed about something. And, they're, and I think in that obsession is a tremendous force because um, I think real creativity comes in when you're wasting time and when you're um, fooling around without a goal. And I think uh, this kind of obsession has a little bit of that sense where you're just doing things because you're compelled to without a goal. And I think that's where often real exploration and learning and new things come from. And so I'm... And I think it, even as a society, we can have temporary obsessions with something that we will work through. Um, and I think that's one way in which a society can, can explore an idea. Um, we can call them fads, whatever, but I think they're, more, I think they're actually more productive than just being a, a, thinking of them as a fad. I think of them as kind of a compulsion that is uh, trying to explore something. And right now, there's a compulsion about how do you, what can you do with 140 characters? And we'll kind of work through that, and we'll say, well, here's what you can do, but that's about it. I think the Internet is sort of the, the world's largest copy machine. What, it, what, what the net does is it copies things. When you send a message to anybody else that's being copied in between, and you take a picture and you're, you're posting it, it's being copied all along the way. And so anything that can be copied will be copied on the Internet, and anything that touches the Internet will be copied. So, it, so that's what it wants. That's what it does. And so you, you have to have an economy based around things other than copies because copies are so prolific that they're valueless. They're, they're worth nothing. So you don't want to protect them. You, you want to you earn money through generatives and other things other than copies, things that are hard to copy. That's how you make money. And I think the same thing is true about tracking. I think the Internet wants to track. 
just like it wants to copy things. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult to prevent this thing that we're on all the time, 24 hours, seven days a week, from tracking because it want it's it, every, all the technologies from sensors to quantification, digitization, communication, wireless connection, all this stuff wants to track. And so it's going to track. We're going to track ourselves. We're going to track each other. Government corporations are going to track us. And I think we can't really get out of that. And I think what we can try and do is civilize and make it convivial kind of tracking. And I think there are some I think some things we can try in that department, and one is uh, maintaining symmetry. So, so we want to have covalence rather than surveillance. We want to, we want to be able to watch who's watching us, track who's tracking us, uh, track what they're tracking, track how accurate it is, correct it if if needed, and and benefit from it in a kind of a peer-to-peer way. I think that's a, a much more likely regime that could be productive um, than having a one-way asymmetrical surveillance which is they're tracking us we don't know what they're looking at we have no benefit from it we can't correct it um, you know we don't even know who they are and so um, that's the that's the negative side that's the, the to me the, the harmful side of it but I think there's other things we can do besides the symmetry, and I think I do think we need regulation. And when there may have to be portions of our lives that are private, um, and so in combination with this, I think we can manage this ubiquitous tracking. I don't think we can stop the ubiquitous tracking. So I think in terms of the NSA, I think what we, what we want is you want to say yes, okay, you're tracking us, but you know, if there's a watch list, we ha- you have to be accountable. You, you, you have to, there has to be, it can't be secret and, uh, outside of uh, any kind of accountability. We, 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 we have to have, uh, be symmetrical. We have to understand why it's there, what the rules are. We, if it's incorrect, we can correct it. Um, there has to be ways to appeal it, all this kind of stuff. And so that's the kind of world that I think um, would, would, would make this a productive type. And, and in terms of corporations, which are doing the same things, um, there has to be more of work at making it transparent both ways. So that um, if we're going to be transparent in our own, we have to be transparent with what happens with this information. And I go along with what um, Jaron Lanier says, which is there, there should be benefits. There should be co-benefits in that in the sense of if my data is being useful to others, then I should, be, I should benefit from that. There, there should be mechanisms to try and make sure that, that, um, that the data that I am allowing to be tracked and that I am even self-tracking myself, when it's beneficial that I partake in, in that value. So, again, there has to be that kind of, of symmetry. And I think um, if we understand that, then um, I think we'll, we'll be a lot further along in making this productive. I think what's not going to work is trying to prohibit this tracking because I think that's like trying to prohibit things from being copied. I just don't think it's going to work. So, so I actually um, think that um, uh, 
the, the leaks are inevitable, and um, I, I think of leaks as sort of like, um, let me put it this way, we, the U.S. just have a policy of smoking the bear, zero tolerance for fire. And so um, fire was bad, there was no good fires, and that you, you, know, you were scolded into preventing forest fire. Well, what that did was it, it, it suppressed the wildfires, and so it built up this huge bank of flammable material. So when a fire did come in, it just destroyed everything. And I think that's what the NSA and three-letter agencies are experiencing is, is that they're trying to be secret, and you can't be secrets when everything, again, the Internet wants to copy stuff. They're running on the Internet. It's going to be copied. And so rather than kind of trying to suppress the leaks, they uh, and then having this once-every-10-year wildfire conflagration consume them, which is what they're having with Snowden, they should be themselves allowing and permitting and managing th- this, these revelations themselves and kind of controlled burns. And so they should actually have a department of, um, you know, intentional leaks or something where, where they are working with agencies like WikiLeaks and stuff, which they eventually will have to do. So that's the, that's the curious thing is that, in fact, the agencies are now working with the newspapers to manage these, why don't they do that before? Instead of now, where, where they're in a in a lower position, they they, they need to, they need to be active about this and um, understand that they have to work with these um, agencies to dispel and dispense these leaks so that they don't build up into this terrible, terrible fuel bank that's just going to blow up when it does. Because it will, they will have leaks. You cannot run anything on the internet and not have it being copied. And so um, I think the, 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 what you want to do is you, you want to have, um, you want to manage your leaks and work with them and not consider these things as treason. You want to you want to have a whistleblowing program of which Edward Snowden was and um, they, they should treat this in a, in a responsible manner as actually doing something that they should be doing and helping them in a certain sense, clear out this deadwood and um, remain legal and do things above board and have the support of the public behind them. Fifteen years ago, I wrote the the New Economy um, book, which was talking about uh, the way that the economic world would shift. Unfortunately, it was released right at the peak of the dot-com era, and everybody at that time believed, even without reading the book, that it was talking about the dot-coms. I didn't even use the word dot-com. I wasn't interested in dot-coms. I was talking about the reconfiguration of the economic landscape due to this, these network effects, due to the fact that you had copies proliferating, due to the fact that we had a shift from places to spaces, due to the fact that we had the free and we had two numbers that were not common in business before, now becoming essential, free and infinite, zero and infinity. We're now parts of the equations as you thought about things, prices going to the free, infinity being the sense of uh, the scaling potential of, of, of a network. And I think um, all the things that I was talking about took a long time to kind of play out, but they're actually more, more valid now. And uh, I'm having the book translated into Chinese, and I just read it the other day. And I, there's almost nothing I would change about it, except for a couple of examples of companies that aren't around in f- uh, 15 years well, later. Well, one of the things I was trying to say in the new economy, I said it in the first couple of pages, was that um, 
you should run your business as if it was a software company, no matter what your business was. It, it basically, the software would eat everything. That that the, the dynamics of the intangible world of code would really become the dynamics of everything. That that, that this stuff, this software and code and information, would become the primary avenues of wealth, whether you were in chemicals or transportation, healthcare, you know, farming, whatever it is, that these were going to become dominated by um, these intangibles. And so therefore, understanding how the economy of intangibles worked was essential. And that's becoming very, very, very clear now. Um, and uh, it, it's so, so the new, new economy now, I think, um, that we're headed into is one where you know, it's being run by big data, which is an intangible. So, so, so that's the that's the real real revolution happening right now. I, I actually think it's a buzzword, but I think it's actually um, justified as being something you should pay attention to because I think we're in the period now where where data, huge dimensions of data and the variables in real time, is really the fundamental. Um, element for making wealth, for for capturing, moving, processing, enhancing, managing data, and, and rearranging it is just as we used to rearrange atoms. Now it's all about rearranging data. I think that is is really what we see in the next ten years. I think that's what these networks are going to do. Is they're going to kind of release data from language to make it machine readable and um, recombine it in an infinite number of ways that we're not even thinking about. But to do that will require a set of tools that we don't have right now. So I think this data is operating in the realm of zillionics. So we're beyond the last prefix that we had of, you know, the X, Yoda, Lada. It's, it's, we don't even have scientific prefixes for the the, 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 the the orders of magnitude of this data that we're, that we're going to be generating and having to manage in real time. And I don't think we even have mathematics right now to do this at the level of you know 10 to the 23rd, whatever it is that we're going to be headed to. And, and that that is, is both an opportunity and a challenge for business. I think it was um, Jacob Applebaum, I can't remember his name, at Facebook, who said that the best minds of his generation were trying to get people to click on ads. And... Um, Neil Stevenson and others, the science fiction writer, have tried to suggest that we should step up and think big and um, not just be concerned with these um, very kind of commercial and pedestrian and immediate and next quarter um, concerns, but really think out at the generational or civilizational scale. And I and I applaud that 100%. I think there is a, a tendency right now to... Um, short-term thinking, to be concerned about um, something that will work and scale up within five years or, or, or whatever. And I think that is um, I think that is a bad habit for us. Um, and I think there is, uh, in, in the culture right now, a, a, a definite short-term bias that is um, unproductive for the long term. And um, it's hard to convince people to take that long-term perspective because the future is so uncertain. It's like, um, not just like the world could end, but even if the world didn't end, um, 
you know, are people still going to carry things in their pocket in, in 10 years? Will, will, um, you know, will, will Wi-Fi even be around? Why should I try and, you know, master this? And so I, I think um, the, the uncertainty of the future is really working against taking long-term perspectives, um, and yet they're, they're ever more needed. Um, and so uh, I, 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 I do think that, that we, I think if I was a young person, I think daring to transcend the short term, daring to, to think about something that might take 10 years to do, like Elon Musk is doing with his electric cars or his crazy super tunnels and stuff, or going to the moon again or Mars. I think th th these really should be our, uh, people like that should be our role models because we have, we have the, the capability to do that, um, um, but it requires a certain kind of discipline to, um, you know, to, to forestall those immediate rewards and go for something that will take 10 years. I, I think there's a lot of art being made now, and some of the best art. I mean, I, I, I would say that some of these serial TV programs, you know, The Lost and The Wire, will go down in history at, at next to Dickens and Shakespeare. I, I think they were comparable. I think they're comparable in their achievement. And I, and I think, um, uh, you know, there will be university courses and professors specializing in studying them just as they have, you know, Dickens experts. And so I think, um, I think we, we are producing art and there's lots of, of room to, to do that, although maybe our society is not honoring the, the artists maybe as much as it once did, but I think it's, um, I don't think of art as kind of like opera and um, you know, maybe even poetry. Um, uh, the Nobel Prize for Poetry should go to Bob Dylan. Because that's the poetry of today. It's in songs. It's in lyrics. And so um, I, I, I think people are doing art and, and, and our society is producing art. But um, sometimes maybe it's not called that. It may take a while for us to recognize it. Um, there's no reason why you can't have great artists making web pages. Um, and so, uh, but I, th I think sometimes our definition or our image of an art artist is somebody who is outside a little bit, um, who is maybe um, doing things, speaking truth to power in some ways, provoking the society in a certain direction, and um, I. I, I I, I think we need those, but I don't think they're going to be outside of the, the cultural medium. I think they're going to be working inside it to, to be effective. And so I, I do expect the artists to, to be working on an iPhone and a tablet in some sense of sooner or later. That's a really great question, is, is how one can protest against the system when it seems impossible even to communicate without it or some senses, you know, be a modern person without it. Um, you could say, well, the Amish are protesting in some senses because they're out of it, but their, their protest is, is very feeble. Um, uh, I, I, I think, I, I think it, it, it will be hard to, to do that. Um, but I do know something about differences, and, and, and uh, it, it's not just 
how do you protest outside the system? It's like, how do you remain different? Because I think going back to what the new economy um, is powered by, new, the, the, the new economy is powered by differences. The difference that makes a difference, that's the Bateson definition. And, um, but it's not just difference, it's connected difference. That's, so, 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 like, you know, the aboriginals in some remote Amazon jungle have a very different viewpoint of the world. They have um, a set of knowledge that's, that's, that's separate from science. It's sh- semantic knowledge, and it's uh, very deep and consistent within their, within their system. But because it's not connected to us, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really affect the rest of the world. The real key is to remain different while you're connected. So the problem with being connected is it, it tends to homogenize everybody. So everybody wants to kind of, you know, there's, there's, this, there's this pressure to be the same if you're connected. And then we see that with, you know, go to any large city around the world and there is a kind of, there is a uniformity of what that downtown may look like. But, um, uh, so, so connection tends to drive things to uniformity but the the value, the power of being connected is by remaining different. So there's this conundrum, this dilemma of remaining different while connected. Because if you're just different but not connected, there's no power in it. And that's actually easy to do. But can you remain different while connected? So you're a little bit different, you're different in a certain degrees, yet you're, you're part of the uniform um, standard. So it's like... You don't want to make up new words that don't mean anything. You want to make you want to write a book that uses the standard words in the dictionary. So you're going to make you're going to be different while connected. You're connected to the English language, but you're going to be different with those. And so I think that's the challenge for artists or even protesters to some extent, even those who are, are trying to you know to change things is that you want to. Be connected and yet remain different, and I think that's a, a, a tremendous trick and tremendous challenge, and requires a certain art in your life. But I think that's what it will be: is, is different while connected. So, so, so the question is: is um, in this kind of network economy, which is basically being run by commercial enterprises rather than, say, the government, which presumably the government would have a, I mean. Somebody's always going to be the boss, and so if it's not commercial, it's just the government. And it's a, and you have the same problem about if you were a protester, or if you were doing things, it's like you can only do things that the government is going to allow you to do. If the government feels that you are threatening to them, you can't say anything; they'll they'll put you in jail. And so, Gandhi and the civil disobedience people uh, were you know worked within the context of the laws of the British Empire, knowing what was acceptable and what wasn't. They were always kind of playing that edge. Now we have, we, we, corporations have a lot more power, and we'll continue to have, probably have more power in the network economy. Um, and so there we're kind of like, you can only do things that are kind of you know, within the terms of agreement with the corporations, and um, otherwise they'll kick you off. And you know, they're all the time you know, taking down material, closing email accounts, preventing PayPal payments, and um, which we saw with, with Wikipedia. Um, is there, are there other ways around that? There, there, well, actually, 
in a certain sense, I think there's more avenues to work around that than there is to work around a government. Um, you know, if the, if, you, if the U.S. government decides to go after you, you're, there, there's really no way to, to, to escape. If Google decides to close down, there, we actually we do have other technical um, avenues. You can actually still have an email. You can still send somebody something that you wouldn't be able to do if the government was running this enterprise. And so in a certain sense, as onerous as it is to have corporations running and they're, and they're maybe less accountable, in a certain sense, that's still better than, I think, than having only the government run it, which kind of what you see in China. So, so um, I'm going to China, you know, twice a year or more in Asia a lot, in India, um, Korea. I'm, I'm going there. I'm married into the, to the culture. And... Um, uh, I think um, I, I think the average American doesn't really appreciate how fast things are changing in these countries, changing in the sense of, of moving from being a very resource-intense um, copy culture to um, you know moving to intangibles and service economy and trying to be innovative and I think um, uh, I think that 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 transition will come um, maybe as a surprise to people sooner than than most people think and um, already you know the military power will come with it and the sort of uh, supremacy hegemony the kind of exceptionalism of America will be um, challenged and I think um, uh, this is actually good for the world. I, 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 I think um, I think it will require a recalibration of uh, America's role in in the world, and and I think this will actually be a benefit for Americans and for the rest of the countries uh, and, and the peoples of the world. Freeman Dyson's put up a challenge about whether the universe as a whole was ultimately fundamentally at its essence discrete or continuous was it was it really at its essence was it sort of binary in a sense of information or was it analog in a sense of um, waves and um, wavicles and and and, and um, well was continuous if it was if it was a, a uh, unbroken unquantumized uh, field and um, I, I don't have any intuition one way or the other, um, and he is a better judge of that. But I, 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 I do think it could make a huge difference in um, our understanding of the world. I, um, uh, would, I would bet that the digital wins. That, that, it, that I mean, I, if I had to make a bet on which way it is, I would, I would suspect that it's, that it's a binary digital world in the sense that it's um, uh, that's information based um, I don't think we know what information is I think it's a huge um, mystery um, and but but I, th I think that over time we'll begin to recast and translate physics in terms of information and um, uh, I could be wrong but if I had to make a bet, I would bet on on the digital, uh, the, the universe is digital. This this pen 
it seems very simple, but it actually probably took a hundred different technologies to make this pen technology. The technologies of plastic, ink, ball bearing, metal. And each of those different technologies probably themselves required another hundred sub-technologies to support it. And of course there's a kind of a circular way in which pens might be necessary to make a ball bearing in the same way that electricity is necessary to make a generator and a generator may be necessary to make the wires of, of an electrical system. A hammer requires a handle and a head and the saw requires the hammer to make the saw that cuts the handle. So there is a sense in which all this is very recursive and that there is a network of different supporting technologies and that the whole web of all these things I call the technium. So the technium is that largest network of all the technologies working together to support each other. And while this pen is definitely not alive, there is a sense in which the technium as a whole exhibits lifelike behaviors in the same way that you know your, your neuron doesn't really think, but the network of neurons in your brains can make an idea. And so I look at the network of all the technology in the world, past and present, as forming a system that seems to have its own urges and tendencies. Like any kind of, um, of a system, it will have certain ways that it's biased to. And that those biases are inherent in the system. It doesn't really matter who is living or not. It's, it's a systems bias. And so the question I've been asking is, what are the biases of the system of all the technologies in the world together? And if we can understand what those, system, what those biases are, then we would have some idea of, of where it's leaning towards and where it generally wants to go. And not surprisingly, since I see this as a lifelike um, system, I also think that its origins is, is in life. That, it, that is, in a certain sense, this system, this te technium, is an extension of the same forces that self-organized into life and that is continuing through the technium so that it is inherently not anti-life. It's actually very much derived from and compatible with living things and that it's doing in terms of the cosmos, the view of the cosmos, is actually continuing and accelerating the things that life and evolution were doing on the planet. And so it's moving in certain directions, and I would say that if we were to make a list of kind of where it's going, it's not a destiny, but a kind of a direction, that it's moving towards more complexity, and it's moving towards more sentience, more mind, it's moving towards more specialization, it's moving towards more energy, uh, density and it's there's a whole set of things that life is also moving towards and that if we want to imagine where light where, what technology will be in a hundred years or a thousand years we can go down the list and say it's going to be more complex than it is today there's going to be more minds and artificial minds everywhere it's going to be whatever we make today we're going to have more specialized versions of in the future that um, it becomes more mutualistic in the sense that it becomes technology becomes more dependent on other technologies, uh, and that we ourselves, our society, will become more mutualistic. So these are all some of the things 
that I would say technology wants because the system itself is biased in these directions inherently outside of what humans like us want. There's an interesting thing about, about China, ancient China, because ancient China, um, if you read through the history, um, almost every single major invention of the world was invented in China first, and sometimes it took hundreds of years for either to make its way to Western Europe or to be reinvented in Western Europe, and that includes you know paper, printing, steel, gunpowder, the compass, rudder, you know, suspension bridges, whatever. There was, there is, it's almost everything. And for a long time, China led the world in civilization because it it was able to make these things um, long before anyone else. But there was one invention that um, the China did not invent, and it turned out to be the most important invention, and that was the invention of the scientific method. So. There's, a, there's still a question about why China didn't invent that invention, but that invention was invented in the West, and because of that one invention, the West suddenly had the power to, had a method for inventing new things and finding new things that was so superior that it just blew past all the great inventions of China and invented so many more things because of this, the power of this one invention. And... Um, that invention, the scientific method, is not a, a, a single thing. It's, it's, a, it's actually a process with many ingredients. And the scientific method itself has actually been changing. So in the very beginning, it was very simple. A couple of processes like con a controlled experiment, having a control, uh, being able to repeat things, um, having to, to have a proof. And... Um, we tend to think of the scientific method as sort of a, a whole, as, as, as fixed in time with a certain um, you know, character. But in fact, lots of things that we assume or we now associate with the scientific method were only invented recently. Some of them only as, as, as recently as 50 years ago. Things like um, um, a double-blind experiment or the, the invention of the placebo or random sampling were all incredibly recent additions to the scientific method. And in, in 50 years from now, the scientific method will have changed more than it has in the past 400 years, just as everything else has. So the scientific method is still changing over time. It's an invention that we invent, and that we're still evolving and replicating. It's a technology. It's a, it's a process technology. But it's, it's probably the most important process and technology that we have. But that is still undergoing evolution, refinement, and advancement. And that we are adding new things to this invention. We're adding things like um, a triple-blind experiment, or um, multiple authors, or uh, quantified self where you have uh, experiments of n equals one. Um, uh, we're doing things like um, saving negative results. And transmitting those, there's there's many many things happening with the scientific method it's, that itself is a technology that we're also changing and will prove over time, and that will affect all the other technologies that we make. My definition of technology is anything a mind produces, and so I think I I I have a very broad scope of technology, and I would say that the first technologies actually came from animals. As, as soon as we had minds, they began to produce. So, in a certain sense, the collective mind of a ant 
he'll make uh, or termites can make a skyscraper. It's kind of like the the external phenotype. You can have birds weave. They do weave. They weave nests. Beavers engineer dams, and that just as we you know had an external phenotype that we made with our own minds, we made technology and tools. It's anything that is being produced by our minds, and that would include not the individual works of art, but the the technologies of art and painting and symphonies. These were all, in some senses, um, technologies in, in, in the sense that they are products of our mind and not just a, a personal expression, but, but uh, uh, something that's useful. And so um, it, I, I think that intangibles like a calendar are a technology. Software, obviously, is a technology. Infrastructures like roads and, uh, and a library, these are, these are technological inventions. And um, uh, so, so it's a very broad definition saying that um, things that minds produce, and, and I would suggest in the future when we have robots and AIs, that the things, the inventions that these minds will make will also be technologies. And so, that's what technology is. I don't think there's any difference between a tool and technology. Oh, it's, it's and this is what tools are. Tools are technologies. And so, my book of cool tools is a book of technologies, which can be intangibles and processes. They don't have to be hardware. It's useful stuff. Things that are useful, and the best tools are tools that enable other tools. Their possibilities, and um, I, I think of technologies as possibilities that unleash future possibilities, and those are the great tools. The, the thing about Google is is that it, it, it um, let me put it this way, I, I think one of the things that science does is is is, is a really curious thing that every time um, we use science to try to answer a question, to to, to we have a question, we, we use it to to give some answers to give us some insight. But invariably, that insight or answer provokes two or three other new questions. That's that Anybody who works in science knows that they're constantly um, finding out what they don't, that they don't know more, that it increases their ignorance. And so in a certain sense, while science is certainly increasing knowledge, it's actually increasing our ignorance even faster. So you could say that the chief effect of science is to the expansion of ignorance. And in a curious way, Google is all about answers. And um, so you could say that Google is sort of increasing answers over time. But what's interesting is that answers are becoming cheap. They're almost free. And I think what becomes scarce in this kind of place that we're headed to is questions. A really good question, because a really good question can unleash new questions. And so, in a certain sense, I think what becomes really valuable in a world like Google's running are great questions. And that's, uh, that's something that, for a long time, humans will be better at than machines. Machines are for answers, humans are for questions. And so I think um, uh, the world that Google is constructing, a world of cheap and free answers, that, that that's, having an answer is not going to be very significant or important. Having a really great question will be where all the value is. Google's about answers.